Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like pranks, skunks, and armpits. <laughs> or thirst, the worst, and well-versed, or curses, purses, hearses, and verses. It's the history of poetry. It's all about manuscript circulation <laughs> and Sir Philip Sidney. Curses. I'm... We should do another one on curses for uh, for next Halloween, James. Oh, God damn you, Samuel Willis. We will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of saliva, well, you would know had you listened to last week's episode, is in fact all about civilization. Politeness and Norbert Elias. It's about chewing tobacco, tuberculosis. It's about truth telling and protecting from evil. It's about women's political movements. It's also about Charles Dickens, childhood beliefs, and superstitions. Mm. Or that the history of drains is in fact all about eating habits in ancient Rome. It's about civilization and belonging. It's about exploitation and disease. It's about dreams and inspiration. And, of course, it's about the US presidential election of 2020. We're recording this on the 3rd of November 2020, and the Biden-Trump election is today. Mm. Uh, which means we probably won't know uh, for at least a few days the result of that election. No, I think I think one of them might be a bit sick once once they've discovered the result of the election. Uh, let me just say, ladies and gentlemen, the man not sitting opposite me because we're back in lockdown um, and we haven't braved it to sit with each other in a recording studio since this COVID thing began. Let me just say that he is the stethoscope of history, listening to the rhythms of the past, pulsing inside the chest of the present. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And it's lovely to be uh, speaking to you across the airwaves. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me, because we are, of course, social distancing in these grimmest of days, again in lockdown, in our respective sheds and studies. Well, let's just say, if he were a historical patient, he'd be none other than Richard the Lionheart himself, who, when injured by a crossbow bolt through his shoulder at the Siege of Chalice in 1199, called for the archer to be brought to his bedside, and pardoning the man, he sent him away free with 
hundred shillings. So valiant, just and regal a patient is he. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. <laughs> very complicated and very good. Well done. Uh, we are, ladies and gentlemen, doing the history of patience. Not uh, patience, but patience, as in sickness today. We certainly are. This is, a, this is another uh, one related to Covid. And we're doing it because uh, I'm teaching face-to-face at the moment. Uh, a brilliant group of students at the University of Plymouth. I'm teaching them on a first-year module called uh, What is History? Which is all about the history of history. And one of the things that we read a couple of weeks ago was Roy Porter's The Patient's View, doing medical history from below. And this is what has inspired this approach to today's podcast episode. And what I'd like to do in a minute is talk you through Roy Porter's article, and set, which sets a new agenda for how to do medical history. That's where I'm coming from, Sam. Mm. I mean, it's worth just thinking broadly about how we do this. So you're mentioning the history from below, so from the perspective of the patient as opposed to the perspective of the doctor, I suspect. Is that what, yes. we're, lo- is that what that, we're looking at? That's right, exactly but- what we're looking at. But it's also how do you recover a patient's view of history? How do you recover that? How do you start thinking about it? What sources do you use? What kinds of questions are you asking? You know, think about the perspective of it from the senses, the smells, the odours, the noises that patients make and how as historians we can interpret that. I mean, I've been reading a lot of medical history recently uh, for some reason or another and I am I am just captivated by it. It is one of the most brilliant, um, exciting and dynamic fields of history that there is. You should all go out and read some really exciting medical history. I've been reading a lot of Alan Withy again, uh, who's a brilliant historian. Hmm. I'm going to be talking about the architecture of being a patient, which is quite interesting, the geography of it, where they put patients in the past, uh, which is one one um, aspect which I've come across where I've become fascinated in. And I'm also going to be thinking about art and how art history uh, also relates to the history of patients. James, why don't you begin? OK, Sam, so I'm going to talk to you about this brilliant article by Roy Porter uh, called The Patient's View, Doing Medical History from Below, which was published for the first time. It's been subsequently republished in various places, but published for the first time in a journal called Theory and Society, volume 14, 1985, uh, pages 175 to 6, 181 to 7 and 192 to 8. So it's in various sort of bits and pieces there. And the idea that he's that he's coming from. He's really writing almost inspired by uh, Marxist historians. So rather than it being a top-down approach to history, this is something very much from the bottom up. So if you think about how you write history or how medicine works, you could view medicine from the perspective of the doctors, from the medical profession. You could have a look at the advance of medical knowledge. You could have a look at the advance of medicines and cures. All of this would give you a very medical profession focused view of health and medicine and illness. But, however, as Porter writes, it takes two to make a medical encounter, the sick person as well as the doctor. And for this reason, one might contend that medical history ought centrally to be about the two way encounters between doctors and patients. And one of the points 
that I think is really important when looking at the history of medicine and illness in the past is actually for a lot of the period that we're talking about, the medieval and early modern period, um, professional medical practitioners were not actually were, were actually quite marginal. Um, and a lot of the primary uh, medical care was undertaken by the community, by the family, uh, or a sort of bit of sort of self-help. So in actual fact, it's anachronistic to view it from a doctor's point of view. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking about throughout some of the examples that I'm going to be talking about is that basically people distrusted doctors throughout the 16th and 17th century. So how then do you bring about a, a sort of a history of a history from the patient's view? I mean, think of it this way. We have lots of histories of epilepsy or hysteria, but none necessarily of hysterics or epileptics. So it's thinking about how we come about that. And if we think about this from the perspective of sources, how do we think, how, what kinds of things can we look at? Where do people record, where do patients record their sufferings? And it's all over the place. If you have a look at things like letters and diaries and journals and recipes and records of reading, it's absolutely everywhere. Two of the examples that I'm going to be talking about are Samuel Pepys and his diary. Samuel Pepys suffered from terrible gallstones and various other sort of ailments throughout his life. And in his encyclopedic diary, he made, get this, uh, 1,017 references to health and illness. (laughs) Charles Darwin kept a separate medical diary recording all sorts of pain, self-examination, self-medication, all sorts of things for his doctor. Uh, And I'll say a little bit about that. So there are all sorts of things that we can look at. You said that you're looking at um, at, at the way in which uh, illness from the patient's view is represented in in the architecture of 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 illness uh, and also in visual sources. But you can also think about it in terms of proverbs and sayings and folklore remedies, traditional wisdom, the calendar, uh, animals, omens, natural pharmacy, uh, all sorts of things connected to pilgrimages, shrines, prayers, so the sort of superstitious ideas behind it, advice manuals, self-care manuals, um, agony columns in magazines, you know, all sorts of things about how to keep fit, stay young and beautiful. There's a whole range of things. One of the most fascinating books that I've read is a book by Michael MacDonald called Mystical Bedlam. Uh, which is based on the case notes, the case histories of Richard Napier, who's an early 17th century clergyman physician. And he has all sorts of patients going uh, to see him with various sort of ailments and maladies. Uh, Particularly, he's interested in in mental uh, disorder. But from that, you get this idea of how you can recover a, a history uh, from a patient's perspective. If we're thinking about how we go about this research, there are various ways that you can go about it. The first thing is that you can start looking at statistics. So your demography comes into being. You count things. So you look at um, statistics around birth, around um, copulation, 
death, standards of living, or mortality. So you get that sort of sense of people from cradle to grave. Those are your, your sort of structures and your contours. Then you look at beliefs. So you look at the ways in which classes and communities have overlapping belief systems, images, symbols in terms of how they reflect on health and attitudes to dying and different stages of life and how they think about the body and bodily functions and how they understand, you know, various organs. And, and this is a very sort of complicated thing that brings in popular culture and medicine and religion. So it's very, you know, so it's really um, sort of mapping I suppose, that collective mentality in terms of illness. You then might think about how you look at when people feel ill and think about how they express pain and illness. So the language of pain, you know, how they explain that. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking a little bit about is the way in which, you know, pain in for 17th century theologians is often seen in a very sort of religious way, that it's it's seen as something sent from God to test them, to punish them, or it arises because of, you know, particular types of behaviour. Um, we can also then think about, you know, about a series of questions um, that at the end of the article, uh, Roy Porter um, makes these a sort of series of conclusions where he sets he sets an agenda, saying that we need to we need to question firstly medical history's preoccupation with cures you know so this idea with with actual medicine and cures for things because actually this doesn't fit for most of the period it's not about drugs it's not about pharmaceutical intervention um it's 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 not about you know it's not about um curing things it's about you know it's about pain control we also secondly need to think that our ancestors were and he I quote, uh, were at least as concerned with positive health and with routine health maintenance as with sickness. In other words, so it's about how you keep well rather than how you are sick. Um, thirdly, I think it's there's also the sense that um, that um, if we think of nowadays, you know, most sickness experiences are, you know, are exceptional. You know, they're exceptional um experiences their exceptional diseases and i quote here again uh, it seems however that for people in the past illness experiences were far more likely to be charged with life meanings involving and transforming ideas of self salvation destiny providence reward and punishment sickness and sin health and holiness were intimately linked so you've got this very close connection between religion and understanding uh, why people fall ill. Um, the fourth thing that you need to think about is we're often think we often think nowadays about illness being a very private thing. So it's something that uh, manifests itself on your body, uh, which of course it would have done in the past. But many of the sort of sites of the occasions of illness or of being a patient would have been very communal. Uh, highly social rituals. You think about the deathbed itself, and we've talked about that in the past with the with the with the in our podcast episode on the bed. I mean, that bed was a very for the much of the the medieval and early modern period was a very communal thing with family gathering round, um, and the family is a is very much a, a sort of the the first port of call 
uh, for sickness care and therapeutics. Well, you know, long before doctors and welfare organisations were were involved. Um, and also, I think the other thing is that, lastly, we think very much of doctors being agents of primary care today. So, you know, you, you feel ill, you go to a doctor. But actually, in much of the past, uh, the doctor would have been a sort of secondary care, you know, and much of the things would have, much of the sort of... Um, healing would have happened at home within the household would have been taken care of by you know often by women within the household and so you only actually would go to a, a physician uh, if things got got really worse and so I think if we're thinking about the bigger contours here um, I'm just going to read his his sort of last conclusion I think because I think what it does is it dis it unsettles in some ways this very sort of linear sense of um of progression in history um, in terms of in terms of medical knowledge and advancement. Medicalization theory harbors another insidious assumption, the implication that the rise of medical power is in some sense ineluctable and unilinear, the ghost train speeding down the old Whiggish mainline from magic to medicine. But a people's history of health will show something much less monolithic. So we're doing nothing less, Sam, than a people's history of health here. Isn't that a brilliant article? Yes, I don't know what ineluctable means. <laughs> Any ideas, anyone? Check, check your dictionary. <laughs> wow. Um, it's quite bold concluding with a word that 90% of the country don't know what it means. 99%. Well done, sir. Um, I do. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating, though, isn't it? Just, just making it quite clear that if you swap the perspective, then you get a different view on something that happens in the past. It's, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's as simple as that, and it's a very kind of broad point that we can make about about history there uh yes there were some real themes there which i thought was fascinating your mention of the bed um the sort of the location of being ill and being a patient in particular because that's what uh really i've been thinking about i've been fascinated by a couple of things recently um one is is the fear of going into hospital so with covid there's been a lot of stuff in the news about people being frightened of going into hospital because they don't want to catch covid so they they might have um, they might be suffering from heart problems or whatever it might be, but there is an associated fear with going into hospitals, which is um, which, which is not actually new. Oh, you think about superbugs and MRSA is one of them, where there's you know there's a danger that you go into hospital with a um, something wrong with your your foot, whatever it might be, and you and then you catch one of these bugs known as superbugs in the hospital. But this fear of going into hospital, I've been poking around a bit trying to find something. Uh, and I came across uh, this excellent book, Rise of the Modern Hospital, an Architectural History of Health and Healing, 1870-1940, by Jean Kizaki uh, in the University of Pittsburgh Press 2017. It's absolutely fascinating. And she makes the point that hospitals are conundrums they are it's slightly counterintuitive because what causes and spreads disease and how to prevent it it's all to do with i mean the issue is to do with gathering numbers of people together and if you've got a number of people together suffering from a variety of different things you put them all in a single building it's more likely to breed disease than to cure it so you're creating a problem by bringing all of the sick together and this is always existed with any uh, group of unwell people brought together. Now, 
understanding of this, I think, is really interesting as well, because before the understanding of germ theory and, and actually p- people understanding how germs spread disease, then f- the physical surroundings were believed to be hugely important, and they absolutely were. One way of looking at this is what is known as hospital diseases in the past, which are um, diseases specifically generated in hospitals, and they were believed to have been generated by the actual building itself. There's a really interesting description here of an outbreak of erysipelas, which is a bacterial infection in the upper layer of the skin, James. It was known as hospital gangrene. There's an outbreak in more than 12 patients in the Massachusetts General Hospital in the winter of 1826 to 27. The attending surgeon, George Hayward, and he performs an extensive investigation into the outbreak and is completely bewildered. He, he concludes that it doesn't seem possible in any case to trace it from one patient to another. And his gaze eventually falls on the building itself. A month passes between the initial cases and with the next incidents, there was no direct contact between the patients who had contracted it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, and then William Hammond, who was a military surgeon who became the 11th Surgeon General of the United States, he talked about how patients gave off foul exhalations that could cling to the clothing, the furniture, the walls, and especially to the bedding. And he concluded that the outbreak was caused by a spread of an accumulation of an atmosphere capable of producing erysipelas in those predisposed to it. It's an atmosphere that was never entirely removed from the want of sufficient ventilation. So they're concerned about ventilation. They're concerned about the actual architecture, the, 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 the way that the hospital, that the ward was built. And it wasn't in any way isolated this is very kind of small examples and you'd have very severe outbreaks of what was known of these hospital diseases 
And uh, it's been worked out by historians that in some severe outbreaks, 20 to 40 percent of patients in hospitals might have died from diseases that they caught after admission rather than for the primary cause of them going in. And in every single incidence, um, it's been identified that the building, the, the, the somehow flawed design of the building was the immediate and direct cause of the hospital disease. So they start redesigning the architecture of hospitals. And it's it's important to think about how significant this is. So if you look back to the medieval period, you're looking at medieval and Renaissance hospitals, um, like the Hospital of the Santa Maria Nuova in Florence or St John's Hospital in Bruges. Here, James, remember you were talking about how important religion was. Well, this was very much the case where cure was, it was spiritual as much as it was physical. And that meant that the hospital buildings were designed to allow the patients to hear religious services from their beds. That was as important, more important than access to ventilation, everything else that comes next. Um, and a, a focus on splitting patients up, a focus on cleanliness, a focus on being able to move carefully and easily around the wards. And you'd end up with large wards, varying shape and size, multiple rows of beds interconnected with outer spaces, a kind of a warren, a chaos, a sort of the perfect, the perfect surroundings for the breeding of disease. Now, if you contrast that to what happens in the late 18th century, and you, James, being at Plymouth University, just down the road, we've got Stonehouse Naval Hospital. And that's possibly the best example of it, of a new type of hospital which maximises airflow, quality of the air. You've got uh, a, a hospital which's made up essentially of a, of a collection of small buildings, right? And each one is narrow, it's linear, it's disconnected from other spaces, it's open to the air outside. You've got your beds very carefully lined up, each one is aligned to a window, that's the crucial thing, um, with space on either side so that you've got access from doctors and nurses can come to either side of the bed. The patient can uh, occupy the same room as other people without breathing the same air because of their window. That's the really, really important part of it. So this is, the, if you think about the Plymouth Naval Hospital, that's late 18th century. Um, and then it all, that's an unusual example. Um, we have real changes in uh, with the Crimean War. Um, everyone will have heard of the wonderful Florence Nightingale and what she actually did to um, reduce the mortality rates in military hospitals by ensuring there was ventilation, by spreading people out, by by looking to cleanliness, by looking to to the cleanliness of air and the cleanliness of bedding. And she reduced the mortality rates from 42% to 2%. And then she writes a book called Notes on Hospitals, and that becomes a sort of international Bible um, of, for, for, for late 19th century hospital design with particular focus on the, um, on, on the way that the beds are laid out, on the way that the hospitals are actually designed. So there we are, James. There's a, there's a really fascinating aspect to the, the physical construction of hospitals. And I haven't even spoken about access to gardens. I haven't actually had much time to look into that, but gardens are amazing. Rehabilitation and um, and geography and gardening. Yeah, there you are. I love it, Sam. Those are the ineluctable facts of history. <laughs> I think you'll find. I, I agree, yeah. 
definitely. No, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that sort of that that spatial geography of illness, I think, is 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 really interesting. If I remember reading uh, History of Private Life, um, a sort of multi-volume uh, work that came out of the French Annals School, and the medieval volume uh, has an essay in it by George Duby on medieval monasteries and one of the things there is that he looks at the spatial geography of the monastery in terms of power relations mm. uh, and particularly where the abbot is based where the sort of the young oblates the sort of new sort of novitiates into the monastery are placed and what's interesting is the the abbot is at the center so you know in terms of the sort of power dynamics the sort of the youthful are are on the are on the exterior and of course where the sanatorium is where the ill people are kept is again on the outskirts of the monastery so on the sort of borders of of the edges which i think is a really good sort of spatial representation of how people in medieval europe would have viewed uh the ill um, so I think you can do all sorts of things with that. I, for one... Am... Let me just come in there, because that's actually really yes. fascinating, because one of the other interesting I, I often am. It, I often am absolutely fascinating. <laughs> is, um, they, is you can actually look at where the where buildings and where patients are put in hospitals, which is itself interesting. So I've talked generally about the wards, but then if you think about accident wards, so if you, A&E, for example, if you go to A&E, it's ground floor isn't it it's usually near a near an entrance you can get to it and that's been the same for years so people who are coping with with accidents had basically the first and the easiest access just for ease of emergency delivery of the patients um then you've got other ones so ophthalmic cases were often in the basement because the rooms had to be easily darkened you've got socially marginal patient categories um Often uh, those to do with mental illness, people who are branded insane, often were also in basements um, because solid foundation walls blocks the noises of those who are agitated. Um, And it also adds to security. Um, there, there are race issues. Often you have patients of colour and in in America, and they're moved away from the main areas of the hospital. Um, and there are all sorts of fascinating examples about of this to do with who goes where. Isolation wards themselves are interesting. Um, there's a whole ar- archaeology of isolation wards in hospitals, where you build a main hospital and then you have. Um, sort of smaller buildings, huts, uh, pavilions built outside in the gardens. So, yeah, there you are, James. You, you, are, you are absolutely right. Monasteries are exactly the same as hospitals. <laughs> Sanatoria and schools, which keeps children sort of separate from, from that. Now, I want to go in a sort of slightly different direction, which is back to the patients and back to some of the evidence of, of patients, if we're thinking about a patient's view of history. And one of the things that I've been arguing so far is the idea that often medical provision takes place within the household um, pre the sort of modern period. And one of the things that I've been working on over the last decade or so, off and on, is uh, medical recipe books uh, that would be within the household. And these are these are these are sort of often hybrid volumes. Um, They're often sort of. They're gathered pieces, collections of paper, and they were often bound and in various sort of forms, sometimes with vellum, sometimes with hard binding. And they have examples of recipes for culinary use, and but also medical use. So you might have 
uh, a sort of recipe for how to make a uh, a particular pudding or a dessert alongside um, how to treat somebody with a, a boil or an ulcer or a recipe for plague. And these exist in their, literally in their dozens in libraries and record offices around the world. An awful lot of work has been done on this by various scholars, um, including people like Elaine Leon um, and Stobart and various other people uh, like that. Um, so it's a really sort of burgeoning field. And I think one of the things that it allows you to do is to have a look at the degree of medical knowledge within the household, because these books were passed from one generation to the next. They were often kept by women, but not solely by women. Um, and they would be they would have all sorts of materials recorded in them. And they then often be passed from from you know, mother to daughter, from from daughter to, to to her daughter. And so they pass on and suddenly end up preserved. But what's interesting about them is the way in which this knowledge transmitted, because it is often not a uniform hand throughout them. In other words, it's not always one person who is put, who is writing this the same recipes in the volume. In other words, there are lots of different hands in. So you get this idea that people are gathering recipes from all over the place, rather like med, rather like culinary recipes nowadays. You know, you're chatting to people and, and you know, you go or you go to somebody's house and you have a, a nice dinner and you say, oh, could I have the recipe? And so that comes into your into your collection. Certainly that's the, the sort of the daybell way with recipes. And I think it's exactly the same in the 16th and 17th century. Um, medical knowledge is passed around. People are writing things down from printed books. They are getting recipes sent to them, medical recipes and cures sent to them in correspondence. But also what is really intriguing, and I've worked in record offices around the country looking at what are described as women's manuscript separates. In other words, these are little pieces, fragments of paper. They're slips of paper. And there was a, a call made by the literary scholar Helen Smith, who's up at York, that we should look at women's manuscript fragments uh, uh, or slips of paper. And they're all over the place. And you look through family manuscript collections. And I just kept coming up with examples of individual medical recipes that are sometimes tucked into manuscripts, sometimes separate. And one of the most extraordinary examples that I came across was actually in just down the road from us, Sam, in, in what was Devon Record Office and now has changed its name a million times, but is now a sort of Devon Heritage Centre or, or something like that. And there's a brilliant collection, a family collection of the Boscowan family uh, and about 200 medical recipes that are related to Margaret Boscowan, uh, who lived in Cornwall, uh, and her daughter, uh, Bridget Fortescue, uh, who is based in Devon, which is why the family papers are in Devon, because the mother passed the medical receipts to the daughter. Um, the the women are quite uh, quite elevated within society. Um, they're members of the of the gentry. They're married to um, to MPs who sit in Parliament. Uh, and from these, you get a from these recipes, you get a sense of the 
the the health and illness of these these women uh and bridget um the daughter suffered from uh, uh, a condition that we've talked about in the past known as the king's evil in other words it's scrofula uh so it's that it's that um tubercular uh disease which um which the sort of touching on of of royal hands was supposed to to cure and basically what this did was it it it, it caused um large sores that sort of oozed on the neck and the head and so there are various recipes to uh, and various advice to deal with the king's evil so to deal with scrofula and i have one of the recipes here uh, which is called the glister. Glister means to basically bright and, and sparkle. And it's uh, there's a whole sort of list of ingredients. And I'll just read it out to you. Take of mallows, pellitory of the wall, violet and mercury leaves of each one handful of posset drink, one quart, boil these, strain it. Take somewhat less than a pint of it. Add to it two ounces of brown sugar and two ounces of syrup of violets. And so make it warm. This is for the glister, for crossed out. This glister, as it is here, set down the things that I appoint myself, but only the manner and time and measures for mine own good, though the doctors here think it best for me to believe them against my own sense and feeling. So in other words, what we've got here is a sense that she knows better than the doctors. And I, I said I was going to talk about this sort of distrust of doctors. And it's certainly a theme that runs throughout the 16th and 17th century. Their sight and smell, their reason for the no, that I complain of only of their preposterous order of things and concluding of my disease and cures according to their own conceits and prescriptions unto which I should never yield to they granted the thing. In other words, you know, she's really distrustful of them. In general, and to deny the thing in every particular that I have any power to command for that which I have a sense and feeling and understanding doth me good or hurt. And yet I must not say so, nor desire to have it done, but answered only my delayings and put-offs with childish, foolish answers, nay, which is worse, answers which carry in them nothing but falsehoods, which was so very displeasing to God. So, in other words, she is you know she's completely disbelieving of these doctors um and it's the it's the idea that these medical recipes were collected by her this medical knowledge was built up by her and that they were collated into a family recipe collection so there we are there's history from below uh the patient's view from Devon-based and Cornwall-based uh, 17th century women, Sam. I love the, the family recipe collection. I've got some passed down to me from my mum um, and a, a big sort of, you know, a big sheaf of them my, my, my wife has as well. She's got a big bundle of, of recipes from mum. And I should think lots of you will have similar experiences of recipes recipes there. I think it's a won wonderful little historical source. Let's pause there, I think, James. We're going to come back and, and do some more on the history of patience. I hope everyone has really enjoyed that. I've really enjoyed researching it and talking about it today. Do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out my new podcast, the Mariner's Mirror Podcast, which is the number one podcast dedicated to all aspects of maritime history. 
And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. We've got a great website at historiesoftheunexpected.com. Please, please do check us out. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected if you would like to support us um, as we carry on our work and we want to do as much as we possibly can to keep you guys entertained that's it for now guys i've really enjoyed talking today and we'll be back soon bye bye guys Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.